and thanks for your word. And Lord, we do pray that you would be the one that speaks to our hearts tonight. So please have your way with us and guide us and lead us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians. It's kind of funny. A few weeks ago, Nate was out of town, and it was time. He had just finished Luke. It was time to do John. And I said, well, do you want me to do John? Or, you know, because I always defer to Nate because, you know, it's his little thing he's doing. I said, you want me to do John? Or he said, no, I kind of want to do John. Why don't you do something else? And so I'm like, yes, sir, I'll do something else. You do John. And this week, I'm like, it's time for 1 Corinthians. He's like, well, let's see, guys with his stepmother, they're suing each other. Um, they're getting drunk at the communion table. Why don't you do 1 Corinthians, he said. <laughs> so, uh, 1 Corinthians is Paul's letter to a church that was full of problems. Okay, probably the most problematic church in the New Testament. And so um, I think there's some fascinating things to learn. You know, throughout life, and maybe this is your experience, I hope it's not your experience from us or anybody in this room, but, you know, I've, through my life, learned as I've kind of watched and navigated and navigated situations and some people and some dynamics and all this, there's some things I've learned in life what not to do. Is that fair? And uh, Corinthians is a great book to learn some things what not to do. And, um, and so I just love the value of this book. But I think as, I, as I've been thinking through it and praying through it this week, there's some value for it in terms of what not to do, but also in the heart of Paul as to how to approach problems and, uh, and even, uh, I think it speaks even to our culture today. So, um, with that, let's start uh, chapter 1. I want to first read chapter 1, verse 4. This is what Paul says after his initial greeting. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus. So I want you to notice that this is the, this is the backdrop. This is the introduction that Paul gives before he's about ready to rattle off many chapters of problems in this church, is that he's thankful for them, and he's thankful uh, for the grace of God which was given to them by Jesus Christ. And so please notice this. As we address these problems, as we think through these problems, as we realize Paul is just going to rail on these people in some cases, he is nonetheless thankful for them. And, you know, in the body of Christ, honestly, Sometimes we rub against each other a little bit, right? That's what bodies do. And if we're a healthy body, uh, let me just put it this way. If we never rub against each other, I think we're probably a superficial body. Is that fair? And if we do rub against each other a little bit, once in a while, graciously, that's okay. And I think there's a way to do that and a way to go about that. And so, um, so we'll see as we learn about some of these problems. So, uh, Paul gives some introduction, and then uh, look at uh, chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 10. We'll read the first problem. First problem is really the foremost problem, and that is division in the church. He starts out in verse 10. Now, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and there be no division, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So you see this? First of all, I want us to highlight this, because this really, this initial problem that he points out really highlights, I think, sort of the vibe for the rest of the book. And that is this. He doesn't say, you know, there are divisions among you. I've heard of you guys. Some of you um, drink beer and some don't. Some think it's okay to go to movies and some don't. 
the point of division has to do with, I'm going to put it this way, and I hope, it, I hope we all understand it. The point of it is spiritual snobbery. It's not levels, uh, they're not divided over worldly issues. There, he doesn't say some of you are Republicans and some of you are Democrats. He says, some of you say, you know, I'm a disciple of Paul. Well, I'm a disciple of Apollos. Well, I'm a disciple of Peter. And some, and the super spiritual ones would say, well, I'm a disciple of Jesus. You see this? We got to, we got to not, we got to catch this before we move on to the rest of the book. Because the attitude here, I believe it's, it's a pompous um, elevation of my own spirituality. Fair enough? And I think it speaks to us in terms of this book. Because as we, here's the paradox. As we read through this book, there is some ugly, ugly stuff in this book. But I think it stems from pride. It stems from pride. They don't say, you know, it's just, it's fascinating to me that the source of the division is who they think they're disciples of. And so it, it's, it bears note of that. He goes on, we're going to jump around a little bit, so bear with me. He jumps, he goes on in this idea, if you flip over to chapter 3, starting in verse 1, he says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. You think you're all puffed up and you're proud and, you know, you're doctrinally superior or whatever, but really you're carnal. You're like babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, or another, I am of Paul, Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but notice this, God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and the, he who waters are one. And each one will receive his own reward for his own, to his own labor. So can I, can I tell you this? This is really, you know, the first um, uh, hint we get from the scriptures of denominationalism, right? Well, I'm a, a sovereignty person. Well, I'm a responsibility person. Well, I'm a Bible person. Well, I'm a Holy Spirit person. You get the idea? We do this all the time. And yet, so we're a church that I appreciate one of the things about this church is that we're very much a hybrid, right? If we went through the room and said, give me your background, you know, I mean, a lot of people don't, you know, a lot of people come here with some sort of background, some sort of maybe a church they grew up in or maybe the church they were in, you know, before they moved to Madison or the church they were a part of or the church that they loved or their favorite church that, you know, uh, they've been to or whatever, but everybody's got sort of a background bent, right? Maybe none whatsoever spiritually. That's its own background bent. And so, but the cool thing is when those uh, different elements can function together as the body of Christ. I appreciate that about this place. But what Paul is describing here is very much not that case, right? Some say they're, they're Apollos followers. And frankly, I could give you, I could name authors right now. Well, I follow this guy, right? And if I said, can I do it? If I said, you know, I was reading John Piper this week. There's a lot of you that will all of a sudden draw about 10 conclusions about me, right? Am I right? If I say, you know, I was reading Benny Hinn this week. Are we talking the same? Did you draw some other conclusions about me? Right? 
You know, I was reading, you know, and so, and Calvary Chapel people, we're the ones that say, frankly, we're the ones that say, well, I follow Jesus, right? So Calvary Chapel people say, well, you know, Chuck Smith said, well, you know, I was friends with Chuck Smith, and, and you know, and somebody else will say, well, you know, this guy said, and we, and we all do this. We all do this. And the point is, uh, it's great to have teachers that we appreciate, and different people speak to our hearts in certain ways and stuff like that, but we've got to be very, very careful very careful. And the Corinthian church didn't get it. Looking ahead, chapter 3, starting verse 18. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles... I'm sorry. I'm at 18. 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Now, Paul doesn't really come right out and say it, but I think I want to try to pull out, and if, it's, if I'm stretching it, then just ignore it. But I think the root of this thing is that worldly wisdom has crept into the church here, Okay. There's a lot of worldly wisdom that they seem to be impressed with. And Paul says, let no one deceive himself. Don't buy into worldly wisdom. Because if somebody thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may be wise. And there's a subtle thing when we get hung up on worldly wisdom that as it creeps into the church, it affects how we think and how we act. Look over to chapter 4. Starting in verse 1. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God, mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. That may be my favorite verse in the Bible. Well, I mean, there's a lot of favorite verses in the Bible, but that's one of them. Moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. What's a steward? A steward is a manager of somebody else's stuff. And I am a steward of somebody else's life. My life, the Scripture tells me, is not my own. My life has, has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's not my own. I've been bought at a price. And because I'm a manager of somebody else's, of, of Jesus' life that he bought, then I'm not the boss of it. I'm not in charge of my life. Now, we could think of that as a downer or a good thing. It might be a downer in that I might be pretty impressed with myself and I think I could be the boss of my own life. The reality is, I think it's probably a good thing in that I don't bear that responsibility. I am merely a steward. A steward does not need to worry about owning the stuff. A steward does not need to worry about maintaining the stuff. A steward simply manages what has been entrusted to him. And that's what we are of our lives and of our relationships and of everything that we have and everything that we do. And so he says, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. Not successful, not super spiritual, not heady, but faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. So Paul's alluding to the fact that they're judging him. You know, maybe the, one that's, maybe the ones that say, I'm of Paul, they're all about him. But the ones that say, I'm of Apollos, you know, Apollos was a very articulate man, right? Maybe they were more impressed with Apollos than with Paul. And so they're judging Paul. Maybe the ones that say, I'm of Christ, they got a problem with Paul for whatever reason. And so they're judging him. Paul says, the Lord is the one that judges me because I'm a steward. I'm a steward. He says, now if these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn from us not to think beyond what is written, that you may learn 
not to think beyond what is written. Again, don't have an elevated view of ourselves or of our doctrine, of our, of our opinions, or of any of that. That none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. What happens when we get puffed up? We suddenly get puffed up. Do we get puffed up just so we can be puffed up? No, when we get puffed up, it's so we can be puffed up one against another. That's the purpose of being puffed up. That's what happens when we get puffed up. We get puffed up in an antagonistic stand, uh, kind of manner. And so we've got to be careful not to be puffed up because that's when we get puffed up against another. Verse 18. Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills. And I will know, not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. Do you get the idea about puffed up here? This word puffed up uh, is repeated throughout this book. It's kind of interesting. That's a problem. That's a problem. So, first four chapters, what do we have so far? We got divisions in the church basically caused by pride, caused by my pet doctrine, my pet uh, favorite teacher, my pet, pa- my pet favorite uh, spiritual thing. My pet favorite spiritual thing. Not because I got some bad habit necessarily, we're getting into that, but because I have this spiritual pride, the spiritual thing that puffs me up. And when I get puffed up, I get puffed up for divisiveness. And that's where, that's where divisiveness comes from. Now, Think of our culture for a minute. We live in a culture that's pretty impressed with itself. Is that fair? We live with culture that, and I got it, I mean, bear with me. I feel like I can't even use any words. I want to use the word progressive, but that automatically has political connotations, right? So just pretend there's no political connotations, okay? We're in a political vacuum, right? But there's this sort of progressive thing that comes with pride, particularly worldly wisdom pride. Does that make sense? You see, if I'm an intellectual, then I might be open-minded, right? Right? Am I making this up? If I'm, if I'm an intellectual, then I'm open-minded. I'm not, well, I don't read Benny Hinn. <laughs> There's lots of things I don't read, right? And I don't follow this person or that person, but I'm open-minded. And I'm progressive. And I might be inclined, if I'm really open-minded, I'm really progressive, and I'm really a lot smarter than you are because I'm puffed up, then I might think it's okay for a man to be with his stepmother. I mean, does that sound, I mean, that's crazy. That's crazy, but you see where it comes from, right? Chapter 5, verse 1. I'm sorry that I have to read it, but it's a part of the story. It's part of the story. Chapter 5, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are what? What are you? Puffed up. Puffed up. And have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. See the idea? I mean, we're talking about the man with his stepmother. But really what we're talking about is the attitude of the church toward this man. They're puffed up. They're puffed up. And they're just kind of hip and progressive. And hey man, who are you to judge? Well, God is. But, you know, immorality is tolerated because they think that's progressive. Verse 6, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Leaven was the yeast, right? A little yeast, I'm not a baker, but a little yeast puffs up the whole lump, right? The whole loaf of bread gets puffed up by a little bit of yeast. And the whole idea here is that we're talking about a group of people that are puffed up. It shouldn't be. He said in verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly do not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. You see this? Paul says, you guys need to be separate. You need to be holy. You need to be stewards. And a good steward, as a manager of your life and of this church and of uh, you know, the body of Christ, a good steward doesn't do certain things. And one of them is what's going on here in the church. But you shouldn't glory in that. But I won't say that you have to separate completely from, you know, anybody that's a sinner, because otherwise you'd have to find a different planet to live on, right? He said you'd have to go out of this world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. So we're not talking about pet doctrines. We're talking about a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And that comes in initially when pride comes in, when arrogance comes in, when they get puffed up. What else happens that maybe if I am I puffed up, I'm full of pride, I think I'm smarter than you are, and I'm going to be antagonistic toward you because I'm puffed up. And let's say you cheat me out of $50. What am I going to do? I'm going to take you to court. Chapter 6, verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? See here again? We have, a, we have sort of a, a, a subplot going, and that is they're impressed with worldly wisdom, right? We read back in the first couple of chapters. Be careful about worldly wisdom. But worldly wisdom goes like this. There's a world system, and there's the body of Christ, right? And what Paul is saying is, you guys have a dispute. And who are you looking to for the answers? The worldly system, the courts, right? That's where you're looking for solutions within the body, right? Now, does that mean a Christian should never walk into a courtroom? No, not necessarily. But a Christian, by and large, should not sue another Christian. Fair enough? So, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? He said, you guys ought to be able to have, have discernment. Verse 4, if then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. So when we have contentions with one another, even to the point of taking one another to court, number one, Wisdom comes from the Lord, right? So we've kind of sidestepped godly wisdom for worldly wisdom, number one. And number two, we've done it in front of unbelievers. We've done it, you know, we've exposed ourselves to the world. And so uh, it doesn't set the example that we want to set. He goes on, chapter 7. Some of this we'll skip over in the interest of time. Uh, he goes on, chapter 7, talks a little bit about marriage. And uh, the idea is you should be content in whatever state you're in. If you're married, be content to be married. If you're single, be content to be single. And um, discontentment was uh, a big problem with them. Then in chapter 8, I want to spend a minute on this. He talks about sort of pet ideologies. And I want to talk about this because, again, it's kind of like the idea of I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Jesus, right? Well, they also had this thing. Let's, chapter 8, verse 1. Now, concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge, what does knowledge do? 
puffs up. You get the idea? Right? When you leave here tonight, three weeks from now, if you don't remember anything, just remember those people were puffed up. Okay? Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Love builds up, the NIV says. And if anyone thinks that he, is anything, that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet, as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, the one Lord Jesus Christ, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all are, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in every one that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eating it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience is being weak, conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, nor neither, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. What in the world is he talking about? So, here's the backstory. In the ancient world, in these days, pagan idol worship was a, was a thing. It was a big problem, right? And if you were going to go and sacrifice an animal to some pagan deity, Basically, the way it worked is, you know, some of the meat would go to the, to the priest, the pagan priest. Some of the meat would, go, would be burned up on the altar, and some of it you'd keep and eat yourself, okay? Well, what most commentators say is, you know, the priest is there, right? And he's got all these people coming in. Let's say, let's say I'm the pagan priest, right? And you all bring in your, your pagan idol, and you give me a third of the meat. What am I going to do with all that, right? Am I going to eat it all? No. So I'm going to resell it in the local market, right? Well, then John Doe Christian goes to the local market, and now he's got a little bit of a dilemma on his hands, right? Because this was meat that was sacrificed to an idol, or was part of the, part of the idol sacrifice, right? And even as I say that, you're all kind of thinking, is that good or bad, right? We're like, I don't know, right? And so it's a, cl- it's a classic example. It's kind of a, frankly, I like it because we don't do this anymore, so we can kind of talk about that, right? We could talk about other things that I could quickly make us all pretty uncomfortable, right? Should we all, well, I won't even go there, right? Can we do this? No, we can't. There, I can divide the room in half on 10 different issues right? Should we do this? Oh, yeah, we should do that. No, we shouldn't. Should we do this? Oh, yeah, we should do that. No, no, we shouldn't. And how does it work? It's just like the food sacrifice to idols. So there are lots of things. Tracy and I talk about this all the time. Every now and then we'll come across something. We'll say, that's kind of like a food sacrifice to idol. It's a problem if you know about it and you feel like that's a problem, right? And so here's how it goes. So Joe Christian goes to the meat market, buys food, right? Basically what Paul tells him throughout this book, throughout this chapter, he's like, if you go to the meat market and there's a nice ribeye hanging there, don't say, hey, was that sacrificed to an idol? Right? Just eat it. And there's no problem with that because what is it? What, what, are there real idols? What is an idol? It's a piece of wood that some craftsman crafted. It's not, a, it's not a God. And so it's no problem. And so what Paul would say is some of you, and again, we're talking about spiritual pompous pride, okay? Some of you say I saw John Doe getting meat from the meat market that's been sacrificed to idols. We need to take that guy out. We need to deal with that guy. We need to treat him like the guy with the stepmother in chapter 5. No, you don't. You treat him like a brother. Now, the other side of that is John Doe sees you looking at him cross-eyed and knows that you're stumbling because he's eating that. 
well, he shouldn't do that if it makes you stumble. All right? Let's do an easy one. Okay, can we do an easy one? 21st century? Can you drink a beer if you're a Christian? See, just divided the room in half, right? I like, I was listening to Chuck Smith talk about this, you know, because I'm of Chuck Smith. No, but anyway, um, he, said, he said somebody was talking to him about it one time, and, and the guy says, I don't come to your church because, you know, I work a long day, and, you know, I really, at the end of a long day, I like to drink a beer, and so I can't come to your church. And Chuck's like, that doesn't prevent you from coming to church. Chuck says, I drink all the beer I want, right? Well, I drink all the beer I want, Right? How much beer do I want? I don't want any. Right? And so, but, you know, if we, inter- if we dissected it out, I think we'd probably have a variety of opinions on that issue. I think it's similar to a food sacrifice idol. Now, in my family, not to rabbit trail too much, uh, there's, a, there's a strong predisposition to alcoholism. I've seen tons of destruction from it. I'm afraid of it. So that's where I'm at. If you've not seen that, if that's, you know, if you drink a glass of wine with dinner, is that, that going to cast you out of the church? I don't think so. But what if you're in a, a, a visible position or somebody knows that you go to this church and you're out to dinner in a small town? Has anybody noticed the small town vibe has some layers to it, right? You're in a small town. You're there drinking, wa- drinking wine. Huh. So that's what they do at that church, huh? Right? Well, if you're aware of that, then you shouldn't make your brother stumble. So you do have some obligation, he says, for conscience sake. Your conscience and the conscience of the person that you might be affecting, right? And so um, this idea of the food sacrificed to idols Keep this in mind, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, love builds up. And can I tell you something? If you are the person that's watching John Doe participate in something that you think is, a, is food sacrifice to idols, can I remind you that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies? If you want to judge the person that's eating that meat, can I remind you that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies? And we need to be very careful about this. Honestly, as, uh, as Christians in the body of Christ, we need to be very careful about this. And so, um, I think in a sense... We know that all we have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. I think that could be a summary statement on the entire book of 1 Corinthians. And where it comes down to, and let me just, if, if I can give us a tool or maybe a litmus test, right? If you're trying to figure out if John Doe here is eating uh, food sacrificed to idol and you're trying to figure out if that's a problem and if he's in sin or not, first of all, more of it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. I'm not a steward of your life. I'm a steward of my life. And number two, can I encourage you to evaluate, to, to try to discern the heart of that person. If the heart of that person is to feed his family, let him eat the meat. Does that make sense? And sometimes we look at the, you know, um, God told uh, Samuel, right? Samuel goes to David's house, right? To find uh, Jesse's house to find the next king. Looks at the firstborn son. He says, ooh, that's a good-looking young man. I think he's the one. And what does God say? You know, this, you know the line. Man looks at what? The outward appearance. Man looks at the circumstance. Man looks at the situation. What does God look at? The heart. God looks at the heart. And we could avoid a lot of contentions by looking at the heart. Is that fair? So, that's food sacrifice to idols. They missed it. So, so far they got divisions in the church. They're impressed with worldly wisdom. They're all puffed up. They're all about uh, tolerant, progressive 
immorality. They're all about suing one another. Uh, they're all about judging each other's little ideologies. Chapter 9, Paul takes a little bit of a pause, and we'll just do that. Paul takes a little bit of a pause to basically defend himself because uh, uh, they're judging him, and he's like, I'm okay. Uh, I'm basically defends himself. Chapter 10, he talks about some Old Testament examples. He said, you know, they were, the Old Testament examples of those people were stewards, and they, we have lessons we can learn from them. If you're full of pride, you're not teachable. So chapter uh, 9, you need, to be, you need to be willing to, be, to receive instruction from me, Paul would say. Chapter 10, you need to be willing to receive the lessons learned, even the, the lessons of their mistakes, of the Old Testament uh, uh, people in the Scriptures. And then he goes into um, talking about the gathering of the church, uh, chapter 11, starting in verse 17. He says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others. And one is hungry and the other is drunk. So, you know, there are... Their Lord's Supper was kind of like a, a potluck, right? And they had wine at the, at, the, at the meal, right? And they were all fighting to get first in line. We would never do that. But they were all fighting to get first in line. The guy at the end of the line is hungry and thirsty. The guy at the beginning of the line is drunk, right? Is that how we operate as a body of Christ? No. No, that's crazy. That's crazy. Skipping ahead, chapter 14, he goes into, and I won't go into it in detail, but basically a misuse of the spiritual gifts, right? The gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there were some that, that uh, thought they were better than others because they, they were able to exercise certain gifts. Who gives the gifts to the Holy, of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit gives the gifts to the Holy Spirit. So who decides uh, what gifts are given to somebody? The Holy Spirit does. Right? So that's no reason for pride or, you know, because I've got XYZ gift and you got ABC gift. Doesn't mean I'm more spiritual or more puffed up or more anything than you are. Then chapter 15, verse 12. They, again, are so progressive in their thinking and all of this that... And let me just back up one second. When we get full of pride and we get impressed with worldly wisdom, we can think things like, it's okay for a guy to be with his stepmother. We can think it's okay to take my brethren to court. And we can even, catch this, we can even think that there's no such thing as resurrection from the dead. Now, it's crazy that I would even say that. But I want us to catch that's what happens when our thinking goes so south based on pride. And pride will drive our thinking so south that we know more than God does, right? Do we ever live like that? Do we ever live like we know more than the Bible? Yeah, sometimes we do, right? We rewrite the Bible all the time as the body of Christ, right? I mean... Starting with Genesis. We've, how many times have we re rewritten the Bible? Right? And so, you know, if you're going to rewrite Genesis, you might as well rewrite the resurrection. Right? So he says, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you, this is to a Christian church. That's amazing. How do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection from the dead, then guess what? Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ. Right? I mean, our thinking can go so bad that people in the first century church could say there's no such thing as resurrection from the dead. Well, I think we would agree that's a, that's a deal breaker for Christianity. 
<laughs> right? That's a deal breaker for Christianity. But that's where pride takes our thinking. That's the point. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and, and try to convince you that Jesus rose from the dead. What I want to sit here and convince you is that's how bad it can get when we get puffed up with pride. And when we get puffed up even with doctrinal pride, we've got to be careful. Now, did you notice I skipped a couple chapters? You guys are sharp. Nothing gets past you. Turn back to chapter 12. So, I think Paul gives us, so those are all the problems. I think Paul gives us two solutions to these problems. And we've alluded to them throughout, but I want to just read. Number one, acting as the body of Christ in unity. Chapter 4, starting in verse 6. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. If you're a Christian, then the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And he's the same, because he's the Holy Spirit, he's the same Holy Spirit in you that he is in the person next to you, the person across the room from you, any other Christian anywhere in the world, any other Christian in a, in a different denominational church, the same spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but there are the same spirit. There are diverse, differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. Verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And, on our, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members are rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. What's one of the solutions that Paul gives us? for all this divisiveness and all this puffed up with pride stuff, it's to recognize that we are a body of Christ. Now, if we think about the human body, the human body has many parts, but one body, right? I mean, that's not rocket science, right? And there, there are, uh, you know, many organs or many tissues, many, all of that. But the eye can't say, you know, everybody around here ought to be an eye. The eye cannot say, now everybody around here ought to be an eye. The eye cannot say, now everybody around here ought to be an eye. Right? I mean, that'd be crazy. You'd be, uh, who's the guy? Huh? Yeah, Mike, uh, Mike, what's his name? Yeah, yeah. He, it didn't work for him either, right? But the, if... If we were all an eye, where would be the body of Christ? Right? And when the body of Christ is functioning like it's supposed to, everybody does their part because they're a steward, but they recognize the value of the other part. Right? Now, this is where I think we struggle. I'm just going to say this. This is where we tend as Christians to struggle. Because I see the world from my angle. Right? 
If I have, if I have a conviction, and it ought to be a conviction. We ought to be people full of conviction. If I have a conviction, then that needs to be a deep-rooted, passionate conviction. But it needs to stop there. Because you may not have the same conviction. Get it? We struggle with this, don't we? Because we think that, let's say somebody's got a, I don't know, I'm, let's say somebody's got a bent towards, okay, I have a friend um, that's passionate about ministering to people coming off drugs, and he's always going, you probably know who I'm talking about, he's always going to the local jail, he's always, and, and that's, what it, that's his thing. He loves it, he's passionate about it, right? And I, I remember, honestly, I remember sitting around a, a table of pastors a couple years ago, and we were basically having this discussion. It was super healthy. It was super encouraging. And I remember looking at my buddy that goes to the jails. I'm like, I'd love to do that, man, but I just, I just can't. I don't know what to say to those guys, right? And then the other guy next to me, you probably also know who I'm talking about, super strategic, right? He's got every data point on Jefferson County Christianity, right? And where the demographics are and how to, how to reach them and, and strategize for them and all that. And, you know, and then it's my turn to talk, right? And I'm like, I like to teach the Bible, <laughs> right? And this guy, we'll say his name's Bob, right? He says, you know what? He said, my son had a basketball coach. I'll never forget this. This always chokes me up. This guy, totally different style than I would have. Totally different everything. But anyway, he said, you know, my son had a basketball coach one time that told him, you just play your game and you'll be a part of a great team. He told me, and he said to me, he said, if you like to teach the Bible, teach the Bible. You don't have to worry about being me or being the next guy or being the next guy. If that's your thing, teach the Bible. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. That is remarkable maturity that we don't always manifest because we too often think that the I, if I'm an I, you should be an I. And I spend most of my Christian life trying to turn you into an I. When in reality, you, you could be the best ear in Jefferson County. Does that make sense? So, we need to be passionate. We need to be full of conviction. But we need to respect what God is doing in the life of another believer because we are stewards of our lives, and that person is a steward of his life. What's another? So one solution to all these problems is recognizing that we're the body of Christ. What's the other solution? Chapter 13, love. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. So he just came off of uh, talking about you know, he's been talking about gifts and, and different roles in the church and spiritual gifts and all of that. And he said, you know, if I can speak with tongues of men and angels, if I don't have love, it's worthless. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have, not, and have all faith so that I can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not, what? Puffed up. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. 
But where there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. So the Corinthian church had tons of problems. Most, if not all, of those problems could have been avoided for them to, number one, recognize they're part of the body of Christ and as a result of that have respect for one another. And secondly, to have love for one another. Again, consider the heart of one another. When you see somebody eating food something that you think is food sacrifice to idol, consider the heart of that. Consider an attitude of love for that person. Patience, kindness, not envying, not parading itself, not puffed up, not rude, not seeking its own, not provoked, thinking no evil, not rejoicing in iniquity, but rejoicing in the truth, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask tonight that we would be that church that functions like the body of Christ, that functions as intricately as the human body, each doing its part, each recognizing the vitality that it brings to the body, and yet each recognizing the vitality that every other cell brings to the body. And Lord, help us to be those people who do everything with love, from an attitude of love, from a heart of love, from a voice of love. Help us to be those people. And Lord, help us to please, please, please avoid being puffed up. Lord, please, would you please show us by your Holy Spirit those areas where we tend to be puffed up. And please help us to walk in humility as stewards of God whose job it is to be faithful. And we'll thank you for the privilege of being your stewards. In Jesus' name.